we're going to be in uh, 2 Corinthians tonight, chapter 1. We've already covered the first seven verses, but I'm going to refresh our memory a little bit because there's been two weeks in between, I think, maybe three. So if you'd open up to 2 Corinthians 1. I'm going to read out loud. It says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, which is fascinating. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And then this is the part that's kind of uncomfortable. Who comforts us in all of our tribulations. Um, and we went through that the previous weeks, that uh, the Christian life will have tribulations and trials. And that's a guarantee But the purpose of our trials and our discomfort is found in the rest of that verse. It says that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation and our hope For you is steadfast, because we know that you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. We left off there, and Paul's writing this letter because folks had a lot of questions, but the second epistle, the second letter to the church at Corinth, was a result of people grumbling and complaining because Paul had said he was going to come and visit them, and he was delayed in his arrival. And so they're starting to um, kind of attack his character and say that he's feeble and he's sick and he uh, doesn't care about us. And grumbling's starting in the church and things begin to fester. And so Paul has to address all these concerns that were written to him about what's taking place. But he wants them to know that one of the reasons why he's not there is because he's been going through some trials and some difficulties. And later in chapter 11, he's going to describe those. And they're pretty intense, what he's endured But he wants to address the folks in relation to their misconception because it's amazing how we will come up with a narrative in our mind as to why somebody hurt us or didn't fulfill a promise to us or didn't fulfill uh, maybe an obligation or a deadline or whatever it is. We come up with a narrative in our head and those folks are guilty. And then Paul gives a defense of himself and he lists it starting in verse 8. And this is what we're going to cover tonight. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble. I want to explain to you what I've been through so that you understand why I'm not there. I don't want you to be ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. Now, I want you to let that word Asia uh, ruminate, kind of marinate in your mind, because it's going to be important as we go through the study. That we were burdened beyond measure. Now, beyond measure means beyond measure. Above strength, which means... Above strength, so that we despaired even of life. They had given up hope of living. Um, now, this isn't, for, for, for some theologians, they would say Paul considered suicide. No. Paul knew better. It wasn't suicide. It was this idea that there's no way out of this. We're, we're going to die. And they had given up all hope of living. Suicide is interesting because. It's a, it's a violation of what God commands. We're not our own. We can't take our own life. We belong to him. We were purchased with his blood. And I know that folks uh, have, have um, committed suicide in the midst of, of 
medications and a number of other things or mental struggles or mental illness. And it's not the unpardonable sin. You don't go to hell for doing it. Uh, But the reality is, you all got here tonight. And looking around the room, you're all well-dressed and uh, you've taken care of things. Your hair's combed. You look nice. And there's nobody who looks disheveled or out of place. And really, your legs got you here, or with the help of a walker, right, Tom? But, but you got here, and your body didn't fail you. And when you commit suicide, you're taking the life of your body, and that's a shell that encompasses your soul. And you're not angry with your body. Uh, what you're trying to kill is the emptiness inside, which is really that which is eternal, And it is not going to solve the problem by stopping the body from operating. It's it's something within you. It's your soul. It's it's what they call the psyche and the pneuma. And that's where the problem lies, is internal. You You can destroy the shell, but the part that's the problem continues on. And it's a big lie that's been thrust upon the earth that somehow suicide is the answer. Even in the old MASH series where you'd have the opening scene with that song, and, and the words to it are just awful. Suicide is painless. I don't know if you'd know that song. MASH too. Maybe none of you have ever even seen it. Was that black and white? Uh, and, and, it, and this idea, even with our young people, that somehow suicide is, is a solution. It isn't. It's the biggest lie there is because the problem continues. Uh, you just don't have a shell. And the worst part is you step into eternity and you're going to be judged whether or not you, you have received the gift of salvation, the cleansing and the covering of the blood of Christ, or you haven't. And that, that is just not a lie that we want our children to embrace. And, and uh, that's the sadness of it. I remember when they were doing this idea of wanting to uh, have the right, uh, the, the euthanasia, where you, where you can, if you have a terminal illness, you can take your life. And I remember I testified before the county board of supervisors because they wanted to pay their consultant or their lobbyist to lobby on behalf of uh, physician-assisted suicide. And as I was sharing with a member of the congregation just last week, their, their loved one is passing away, and they said, you know, it was the most fascinating thing. We don't know if the morphine or what it was, but in the midst of it, they raised their hands almost as though they were worshiping. Have you ever seen this before? And I said, yes, countless times by the bedside of those who've passed, they've raised their hands um, just as they're getting ready to step into eternity. Because the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And as the body starts to shut down, the last sense, that is, if you're not deaf, the last sense of the human body to, to operate is the sense of hearing, the, the, um, uh, the, this, this, this uh, auditory sense remains. So everything you're saying to your loved one who's in a coma, they hear. And you're in this between aspect where you're, you're hearing the voice of God as a captive audience and he is bringing back every memory, every connection you've ever had with anyone who's ever shared anything with you. It's a holy moment. And anytime I see the secular left moving for something adamantly, uh, I usually think that this is something that God really probably is opposed to. Because the, the things that have happened at the very last moments of someone's life have always been what I consider to be a holy moment. You're a captive audience. God is speaking to you. He is, 
He, every, everything that's being whispered in your ear, you're hearing. He's mixing it with the truth of his voice. You're hearing his voice abundantly. You're having this internal battle with everything that you have kind of come to believe through the course of your life and being mixed with the voice of God. And, and while your heart is still beating and there's this opportunity to be reconciled before your life is taken, because the wages of sin is death. And before that penalty is, is concluded, before your heart stops beating and your, you know, your, your earthly uh, tent dissipates, you have to be reconciled to the Lord. Otherwise, this problem that you've been wanting to run from and, and this avoidance of pain steps into eternity. And so when Paul says that he, had, he was troubled and that the burden was beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life, he is not contemplating suicide. That's not a Christian perspective. It's not a Jewish perspective. It is unimaginable to somebody like the Apostle Paul. All he's declaring here, and no matter what commentaries you read, all Paul is declaring here is, I, I just don't see a way out of this one. I'm going to die. And uh, I'll cover that in a moment to when that event probably took place and what he's referring to. I believe it happened in Acts chapter 19. We'll take a look at it momentarily. But he said, we despaired even of life. And then verse 9, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Basically, God, if we're getting out of this mess, if this body is going to restore, if I'm going to be able to get out of here alive, it's going to have to be nothing short of the hand of God. Lord, you, you, you have to do this. And then he writes in verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death. And does deliver us in whom we trust that, we'll, that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us. That thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Don't dismiss the power of prayer. I've had countless experiences in my life where something tragic is happening, happening or something has befallen us. And somebody will call and say, you are so heavy on my heart right now. I have been praying for you. I haven't been able to sleep tonight. And I'll share with them and both of us will be in awe. Uh, it, it's, you know, prayer is a conversation with God like you would have a conversation with your spouse. It's, it's having this time where he's aligning you with what his heart is about. He's opening your eyes to things to pray for, the eyes of your heart. And, and you, you start to intercede. I remember Sunday night when, when uh, the worship team was, was uh, playing at the very end of the message. And it was a really great message by Pastor Brad. Um, and, and as we were just letting the Lord minister to us, and as, as we were aligning ourselves with him, this, this beautiful thing happened in the midst of the worship time where I just kind of, I, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of anyone else in the room, and I had this profound prayer time where I literally went almost in rapid succession up and down the state with face after face after face after face of people that were critical in all these things that I was burdened by, and the Lord, and I didn't even know how to pray for them or to pray for the circumstances that they're facing and their unbelievable schedules that they have to deal with and, and all the corruption that they're, they're having to face and all the things. It's like the Spirit interceded and, and almost with groanings too deep for words, but there was this, this sustaining prayer, just watching their faces and, and, and bathing them in prayer up and down the state where I, I finished and I was just absolutely lifted from this burden. A joy overcame me. And this is the idea of the folks Paul saying to them, thank you for that. Thank you for praying for me. In the midst of that, when all hope was lost and we, we were pretty sure it was over, this sustaining strength of God came through together helping together in prayer for us. Thanks be given to many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. I don't know if you understand this, but prayer is a gift. 
And, and the highest form of prayer, what do you think it is? Praise. The Bible says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make what? Intercession. The highest form of prayer is described by, by our Savior, the Lord. It's intercessory prayer. Do you have problems with your kids, your grandkids, neighbors? Do you have enemies? Do you have a bad boss? Do you have a tough relationship? Whatever. I'll tell you the secret. Intercede in prayer. You can't hate somebody you're praying for. It's fascinating. You can't, be, you can't remain angry with somebody you're praying for. Uh, I'm not going to say who, because it would divulge kind of the political specter, spectrum of what I'm involved in. But I will say this. There is one person in particular in this city that drives me crazy. And, and I have tried and tried to, to be kind. And every turn, it's almost like handling a viper. And that night, seated about where you are right there, just praying, the Lord made intercession. I had this peace come over me as I'm praying for this person. Burdened to pray for them. Only to realize that they've been to church the last three Sundays in a row. I had a burden to pray for them in D.C. I had a burden to pray for them Sunday night. And I've come to realize which that they've been in a church is I mean, we could just throw away 2 Corinthians chapter 1 if you think this is miraculous. What I just described to you, and if you knew the details, it would blow you away, that they're in church is so beyond my imagination. And I, I, I found myself yesterday, after I got the text from a friend, I was stunned. They're not here in this church, but they're here in church. And I am just thrilled beyond measure that God is, is he, he intercedes when we intercede. And it's profound, and that's what Paul's saying. It's a gift granted to us through many. And then in verse 12, he says this, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we may, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. That word sincerity is um, where they get, it's in the Greek, it's called sincera. And the, the clear translation of it is without wax. And it's one of my favorite words in the Greek, sincera. It means without wax. So if you're spending three years uh, on a marble uh, statuary and, and you're getting to the, the, the final pieces and fixing the facial structure and polishing it and one little tap with the hammer and the nose breaks and you've got this beautiful statue of a person that has, you know, and it's taken three years and that one little and the nose comes off. So what they would do in the Greek world, in the statuary world, is they'd reach down and take some of the dust from the sandings and they'd mix it and they'd make somewhat of a paste and they would put the nose with the wax and the, the dustings and they would, they would stick it and they would put it back on so it would be a clean placement and, and it would look as though everything was fine. And you would be thrilled about it. You'd bring the statuary home. You'd put it in the front window for everyone to see and that's you standing there and you're having a dinner party and the sun's coming in and it, the wax gets soft and the nose starts, it looks like Carl Malden. You're like, hey, uh, your nose is running. I mean, not like but it's literally running off your face. It's, and, and so this was common practice in, in some of these, you know, um, alabaster shops and marble shops. And so they would put in front of the store uh, a sign that said, our statues are sincera. 
That means without wax. There's no funny business going on here. What you see is what you get. And when he speaks of this idea that they conducted themselves in simplicity, uh, another word in simplicity would be an integrity. Um, Integer is where you get the word integrity. Integer means a whole number. It's not divided. It's, it's not a fraction. So, so you, have, you, you have this integrity, this, this whole person in front of you. It, it, there's nothing complicated about my life. What you see is what you get. What, what you see in public is what you're going to see in private. Uh, that's the life we live. And Paul's laying this out because they've attacked his character and they've attacked the character of Timothy who's traveling with him. And they said, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in integrity or simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but with the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other thing to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end as also you have understood us in part that we, are, uh, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And what he's saying is, look, we love you guys. We just couldn't make it to Corinth in, in a timely manner. We faced some issues in Asia. Uh, we despaired even of our life. And if that's not a good enough reason why we can't be with you, I'm sorry we didn't text or phone call. It didn't exist. And, and they're just saying, look, whatever the gossip is or the slander that's occurred, and by the way, uh, I've I've shared this before, but it's important to continue to reemphasize this. Gossip is what you would say behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face. And it's just as bad as what we call flattery. And flattery is what you'd say to someone's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. Both are bad. They're not integritous. They're not sincere. They're not simplistic. They're bad. And Paul is saying, this is exactly what happened. Whatever was said was untrue. And we love you guys, we boast about you, and we hope that you boast about us because everything we told you before is still legit today. And, and it was comforting to, to the church in Corinth. Now, all of that and reading through it, we just had a quick flyover. But the thing I want to focus on is really this idea of what it was in Paul's life that he reflected on in Asia uh, when he said, For we do want, not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. If he didn't want them to be ignorant, I don't want us to be ignorant. And he said that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And the reason why I want to focus on this tonight is because all of us in some period of time are going to be in a place exactly like this. Um, you're, you're going to give up, and it's going to be so overwhelming that you almost don't even think you're going to make it through physically. Um, I would imagine that there are folks, and as we covered it earlier, there are folks through the course of your life where you, you have thought of taking your life. And I just want to emphasize again, you're not going to kill the thing that is bothering you. You're going to be killing the thing that's helping you find the answers to what's bothering you. So don't do that. That's just dumb. And however you've been deceived, it will not work. It will make your problems eternally worse. Don't do it. Um, and, and plus, as a sheriff's chaplain, I was inevitably the one they called, and it was the number one call I'd get as a sheriff's chaplain, that the family would call me once their loved one had committed suicide, and I'd have to come in and comfort the family. They left the mess, and we were called in to come clean it up. And literally, physically, I remember one boy in particular who shot himself, I had to clean the fragments off the wall. I remember another who'd hung themselves, and I had to help the officer get the, the person down. 
Um, it, it's just not pleasant. And, and if you knew what you leave behind, and one man in particular thought he did such a great job because he had paid all the bills and he had written notes where each of the checks were supposed to go and where to find this and all these others and all financial issues. And, and, they just, and she just looked at the desk and she just, just went like that to the desk. What are you thinking? This, this is not the problem. And, and she's, she's moaning and crying and just distraught and the, the family's distraught. And, and whatever he thought would be the solution wasn't it. Your problem isn't financial. Your problem really isn't relational with somebody on this earth. Your problem is with the Lord. And when you shed this earth suit and you step in front of him and you haven't reconciled with him, it's worse. So that's not what we're going to look at. What I want to speak to is if you are in a place where you're despairing of life itself, and maybe you've had those thoughts, and I can, I can say in my lifetime I've had those thoughts, and they're going to put that in an edit and put it in the news somewhere. I, I don't know anyone who hasn't at one point or t- in time. I was talking with a young fella who broke up with his girlfriend, and he just, you know, I, I, I don't know how to process all this. I got that. I got that. I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. No fun. Um. But I look at my life now and I look back at what I thought was trauma. Life is so good. And these trials that we go through are temporary, but there's there's a purpose as we've covered the first seven verses that we comfort others with the comfort we we ourselves have received. And so it's just really a wonderful passage because Paul understands this. But you're going to see when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the trouble that came to us in Asia. I want to see if I found it. Um, there's many speculations as to what the trouble could have been, but putting the pieces together and reading a number of theologians, um, I want to take a look at it. And so we're going to, before we do that, I want to talk about this. Whatever you're facing or whatever you think you may face in life or whatever your biggest fear is, that you just don't think you could survive it, oftentimes I think, I, I don't think I could ever survive the death of one of my children. Some of you have experienced that. And, and now I know I can if God sees that that's something that would happen. And I trust him. Because I wouldn't be able to counsel others in the midst of their trial if I couldn't have given that to them. And I remember when I had that struggle with the Lord when one of our kids had a real bad sickness and, and it, was, it was concerning. And I just gave that to the Lord. And I settled and one of the things I do in life is I think of the, fir- the worst circumstance possible. And I kept telling this to the families of, of uh, the, the victims of the borderline the night when we were at the, the Fiori Teen Center. I just said, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And to prepare for the worst means you need to go there. You need to go there. And prepare for that. Because whatever your faith structure is, You're going to get your knees knocked out from underneath you. You'll fall. And you'll be devastated. You have to go there. Now, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And in every case they did. And walking with some of the parents through it, I've seen how they wouldn't wish it on their worst enemies. But how the Lord has sustained them through the process of this has been remarkable. And some of you know that. Some of you know what that's about. Um, yeah, I, I remember with Natasha, we thought the next call we'd get would be from the coroner to come pick her up. 
I was talking to her when I was in D.C. And that, that's one of those things. You just go through life and what are the things that are going to move you? What's going to bring you to such a place of despair that you don't think you can live anymore? What will break your heart? And it's in those moments that you're going to realize how amazingly strong God is. I don't know what the problem is, but I have news for you. God is enough. And all of these trials is so that you're going to receive his comfort so you can walk someone else through it. Thank you, Lord. He wanted to emphasize that. I'll leave you with this last thought, and then I want to show you something because we're limited on time. The greatest trials I've experienced in my life, just especially sitting with that young man, the reason why I have something to say is because I went through that hell. And God was faithful through the process. Your suffering is not in vain. It is equipping. He's placed us in a fallen world with an eternal hope. And, and the suffering comes because it's not that we're outside of his will. It's that we're stepping into the heartache of someone else. And here's the worst part. Hurting people hurt people. And if you're going to try to help somebody that's hurting, they're going to hurt you. And that's why I think Paul got it. Um, I'm going to show you a video of someone who survived, a, a number of folks who survived what was, and I, I touched on it because, as I told you, um, he was Corporal Harrell. Uh, he was promoted last year to Sergeant Harrell by act of the President of the United States. He's now one of 12 survivors of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. Uh, 1,200 sailors and Marines were on board the Indianapolis when struck by a Japanese torpedo. 310 died instantly. Uh, about 900 went into the water. And a little less than 320 after four days came out. And most of them were eaten by sharks. There are now only 12 survivors remaining alive. And Sergeant Harrell uh, is 94 years young. He's the last living Marine that was stationed on board the Indianapolis. Um, and you're going to see a video of some of these guys. Some of them have passed. Um, and then Sergeant Harrell's wife, Ola, just passed away two days ago or three days, about a week ago, I think. Um, they've been married 71 years. But he lives to tell the story. And everywhere this 94-year-old man goes, he talks about how the Lord sustained him when he thought he couldn't live anymore. And he contrasted his life, you won't hear it on this video, but he contrasted his life with the man that he carried on his back the entire four days who had had a broken leg and a shattered arm. And he had inspired him, and three hours before they were rescued, the man decided to just not live anymore. He gave up. And the men that survived, um, they all attest, and, and he couldn't, he tried to witness to this man, he couldn't, uh, but, but Sergeant Harrell made it through. So are we ready to show that video? All right, take a look at this. Isn't it awesome? No, I'm kidding. Turn it. Never allowed to tell the disaster. I never talked to my wife or my kids for 25 years about this. Indianapolis changed history. It was a shift that changed history, but the men pay the price. As far as I'm concerned, it should be told what really happened out there in the water.
I started into the Navy when I was 16, and I saw all 10 battles. I saw the flag raised in Mount Sarabachi. And I personally helped load another components of the atomic bomb. On the 30th of July, we were hit by two torpedoes from a submarine. And sunk. Next thing I know, the ship's going right out from under me. All I did was just walk over the side of the ship and into the water. I didn't jump off the ship. The ship left me. I opened my eyes under the water and I could see this ship was coming down on top of me. I never did know how to swim and the Navy never taught me how to swim. And here's all these sharks going around. Come right across your legs like that. It was chaos. We couldn't understand why we weren't rescued. A lot of them lost the will to live. You look at their eyes, they're, they're lost. You see people when they're, they're, they're not there. Us guys decided, well, hell, that's where we're going to die. Then there on that uh, fourth day, I said, I hear a plane. And we began to splash water. We began to yell. We began to pray everything. And, and seemingly when he got to a point that had he gone any further, he would have gone over. But you know what he did? He made a dive. How did I make it with nothing to eat, no water to drink, no sleep for five nights? The Lord was with me. If somebody wrote this up as fiction, nobody would believe it happened. People don't realize the politics in the armed forces. All the headlines were about the captain being court-martialed. Many a head should have rolled before they ever got to the camp. It's the story that's not been told. Those don't want to remember. They don't want to recall this. It's too much. But I'm a dummy. I think it ought to be told. So um, the commanding officer, Captain McVeigh, actually took his life at, at 70 years of age. He was so distraught. He was the only captain in U.S. Navy history to have been court-martialed for having his ship being, been sunk by an enemy combatant. And it was to cover all the Navy brass that had never radioed that these men were in the water for four days and 600 lives were lost because of stupidity. Um, and they've since exonerated the captain and these guys have been recognized. But it's the largest loss of life in U.S. naval history. Um, and, and you hear the stories. These guys survived because they had a faith in the Lord. Most of them had given up all hope of living. Not having any water. After three days, the human body starts to really go through struggles. And I share all that because as we come to the passage tonight, I want to close by looking at this circumstance. And I want to read to you a couple of things that I wrote down um, Because Paul was sure, listen, Paul was sure, pay attention, Paul was sure he was going to die. And I think he saw the purpose in God bringing him to this place that was beyond his control and capacity to deal with it. It forced him, pay attention, it forced him to trust in God. To Paul, the situation was as good as dead. I don't want to talk about your life. I want to talk about whatever circumstance you're facing. Because the only hope for you is God's deliverance. You can't fix this. You can't fix it. Only God can. If he can uh, raise Jesus from the dead, he most certainly can save us. And he can use the circumstance you're under to draw you closer to him. Don't despair because of the circumstances. 
He can deliver from the threat of death, death of whatever you think is dying. May not be your life, maybe a relationship, maybe a job, maybe finances, I don't know. But God brings us to total despair. God brings us to total despair so that we don't trust in ourselves, but we trust in him. And I was thinking a lot of us probably feel like Paul right about now. Maybe you don't, but in time you will. We've had moments in our lives, the longer we're on this earth. I'm going to breeze through this because we've read it. The first scripture is what we read. We don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we are burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. We had the sense of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and so delivers us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Paul declares this. You, you tend to despair of hope when you're in a bad situation. And Paul is emphasizing to the church at Corinth that there's no need to despair of hope. You always have hope. You always have hope. And you think that nothing can help me at this point. That's exactly where God loves to work. Because he gets all the credit. And God allows these things to happen so you can really see how big he is. Now you can quit and take your baseball bat and your ball and go home. Make your problems worse. Or you can trust him. And he'll use this adverse situation to bring you to, to him in a greater capacity that you trust him. Um, another thing I think of is how all our schemes tend to fail. We've been keeping these plates spinning for so long and now it's just collapsing. God loves that because you're exhausted and you've just been living a lie. There's no simplicity, no sincerity, no integrity and it just comes crashing down. And, and the beautiful thing about the Sermon on the Mount is it's, it's like building a home. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the very first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Really what that means is, God, I am void apart from you. That's the foundation we lay as Christians. You have to get through all the chaff as, as, a, as anyone who does construction. You can't build on loose fill. You gotta get all the schemes out of the way, all the gimmicks out of the way, all your lies, all your self-perception, all the things, you know, what, whatever it is. Just You gotta get down to bedrock. And the bedrock is, apart from you, God, I can't do this. Boom! Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now we can start working, basically, is what God says. And you got to get past all of the schemes and realize they failed and that God is all you've got and all you've ever needed. And now you can start building on this firm foundation and you turn everything over to him. And this was true for Paul, both in the spiritual and physical sense. So it's true for us, both in the spiritual and physical sense. Um, Paul faced this physical death, but in a sense, it would have been the end of, of, of his spiritual workings. It goes on to say, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks be given by many persons. If you know someone going through this, pray for them, intercede for them. It's so vital and so important. I'm going to skip by uh, this passage, and I want to bring you to where I think all of this is, is to a conclusion. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Somebody's responsible for your pain right now. 
Somebody's put you in a predicament and it's killing you. And guess what? You're in a prison and you've given them the key. And, and, and this is the last letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote before he was beheaded. This is the last chapter of the last letter that Paul ever wrote. He would say to Timothy, come before winter and bring the parchments, bring the scriptures. I need the comfort and I need to be warm because winter's coming. But before he says that, to settle in it, he still has on his mind that son of a gun Alexander. That pimple needs to be popped. He's, he, he, he did me much harm and may the Lord repay him according to his works. Now, if we get to the end of our life and we have to do a summation of, and I want you to think in your mind, what's the one person that you just can't stop ruminating over? I remember my mother. She, when I told, you guys know the story, some of you don't, but I remember my mother, and it's a good illustration, so I'm going to repeat it. But my mother, when I, when I named my son Daniel, she was livid. She said, no grandchild of mine will be named Daniel. I'm like, what? It's a cool name. God is my judge. Michelle and I prayed about it. We put the name in an envelope and we opened it up simultaneously and God confirmed. I mean, come on, mom. And we didn't even know it was a boy. We opened up the letter from the doctor to find it was a boy, then opened up the name and that's like miraculous. And she's like, you're not naming him Daniel. And she hangs up. And I called her back, and she had that way of being kind of witchy. And I called her back. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not hanging up. Tell me what's going on. She says, I'm I'm only going to say this once. What's the name of my father, your grandfather? I go, I have no idea. You never talk about him. I didn't even know I had one. She said his name was Daniel Frank McKee, and he was the most awful man who ever lived. And no grandchild of mine will be named Daniel or Danielle or anything remotely close to that. And that's all I have to say about it. I said, Mom, I love you, but God told me, if you need to disown me and you don't want to hug this baby and you can't get over it, that's your problem, not mine. And you got to take that up with the Lord. And I remember when Daniel was born and she was holding Daniel in her arms, she just kept saying his name over and over. It was cathartic. It was like a healing process happened and it was pretty, pretty amazing. I would say the name Daniel is the same. It was to my mother what the name Alexander is to Paul. And Paul would write about an instance that correlates with not being ignorant of what they suffered. And we find that later in the epistle, the letter. He says further on in chapter 11, he says, he's contending for his character. He says, are they Hebrews? I'm also a Hebrew. Are they Israelites? I am also. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From Jews, five times I receive 40 stripes minus one. Can't just read over that with your cup of tea in the morning on your devotion and go, oh, that's lovely. Cat of nine tails, flat leather, metal shards at the end or glass shards at the end, dipped in water so the leather would stick and the glass or the metal would dig into the back and pull it out. And you were hit with a cat of nine tails 39 times. He got that five times. You ever see the pictures of of the slaves from the antebellum south and the scars on their back? That was Paul's back. You get a beating like that, it punctures, it, it, it rips to the muscle, 
Oftentimes it may break the ribs. It'll expose the lungs. Infection will. And, and not only that, not only did he get the 39 lashes, but he got beatings. And it says here, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently. But who did he receive five times uh, 39 lashes from? The Jews. The Jews. He says this in the first epistle to Timothy. He says, This I charge, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience. He goes back to that good conscience. You want to be simple and sincere and integrous, which some having rejected, there are people that don't do this, they're duplicitous, they are not integritous, they are awful. Some having rejected concerning the faith and have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. This guy irritates him. He reflects on him in the last letter of his life. He reflects on the other epistle that he wrote to his charge, Timothy, about this guy. This is an example of somebody that is awful. And I see Paul writing this epistle and I see this picture in his head of the 39 lashes with the cat of nine tails and the metal shards. And, and not only that, uh, this is a better picture maybe of Paul when he was younger getting the beating. Not only did he get the 39 lashes, but he was beaten as well. Where did all this come from? What was it all about? Well, the Apostle Paul, interestingly enough, um, suffered uh, an awful event in the course of his life. I, I, I want to read this to you. Um, there was Demetrius the silversmith, and he had an uproar made against him by De, Paul had an uproar uh, made against him by Demetrius the silversmith in Ephesus. And I was in Ephesus. I saw the location and the amphitheater where this took place. Many people had been coming to Christ, and Demetrius, who was a silversmith, was stirred up. Uh, others of the craft that told them that something had to be done about Paul. See, Demetrius was selling these little statues of Diana, and everybody in Ephesus worshipped Diana of the Ephesians. And then Paul comes in, and everyone comes to Christ, and his silversmith business drops. And so Demetrius starts this riot in the city of Ephesus because of Paul. Now, Paul expected that. The guy's a pagan. He's losing his business. I get it. Paul was probably concerned. He says, hey, we can maybe take an offering and help with those things. And it wasn't so much Demetrius that he was concerned with. Um, but Paul was teaching that Diana wasn't a true God and, and on and on. And, and, and these men had made their living from the silver idols. And so Paul is destroying their, their, their livelihood. So he creates, a, creates an uproar in Ephesus. And they began to gather in the great arena in Ephesus. And one of Paul's companions... One of Paul's companions who was traveling with him, and we can see nice things written about him other than the two awful things I wrote. One of Paul's companions was a man named... Who's the guy he hates? Alexander. One of his companions was a guy named Alexander who was from Macedonia. And he was grabbed. Alexander was grabbed and pulled into the arena. And Alexander is a Jew... He's a Hellenistic Jew. He's pulled into the arena and is teeming with people and they want to just tear him to shreds. Um, most people didn't even know why they were there in the arena. They were all, hey, there's a riot. Let's go. Uh, and they were, they were just crowd followers. 
And Alexander signals that he wanted to speak to the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, they began to shout for two hours and chant, great is Diana, the Ephesians. And they just kept yelling and yelling and yelling. And uh, it, it intensifies. And, um, and then they take Paul, and Alexander bails on him. Alexander bails on him, and then he turns the Jewish community and the Christian community against Paul. You you Christians are all in trouble because of Paul. He didn't have to go in there. And Alexander starts to stir up all this concern. Uh, Here it is in Acts 19. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent him to pleading that he would not venture into the theater. And then verse 33 says, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, and the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out, about two hours, great as Diana the Ephesians. And Alexander throws Paul under the bus. And, and now, in the Jewish synagogues, they don't follow the Roman law. Um, and so what they do is more than likely, and this is what scholars believe, they brought him into the Jewish court. And as they brought him into the Jewish court, they had a, a testifying. And this is what um, Duncan comes up with, the flogging in a Jewish court, G.S. Duncan. He suggests that failing to get Paul convicted in a state court, the Jews of Asia took the law into their own hands and in a purely Jewish ecclesiastical court administered the 39 lashes. You remember how he said that he had received 39 lashes from the Jews five times? This brought him to the verge of death and this happened in Laodicea near Ephesus. And it's possible that the leader of the Jewish opposition in Ephesus could have been Alexander uh, mentioned in Acts 19.33 for his attempt to disassociate the Jewish community from Paul and in 2 Timothy 4.14, which we read earlier, as having done great harm to him. So all that to say that Paul had a friend. Remember what Dr. Martin Luther King said Um, I'm not so much concerned about the voice of my enemies as much as I'm concerned about the silence of my friends. There's just something overwhelming to be thrust into a realm where the people who are supposed to defend you don't. And I don't know that I've been in that situation a lot. I can probably count on one hand being betrayed by a friend. But I've been in places where I've betrayed myself. And I've gotten myself in a world of hurt. And my lack of sincerity and integrity has got me in a mess. And God wants to get down to the bedrock. And I just don't necessarily know that I want that. And I fight him. And maybe I'm the only one in the room and you guys are standing in judgment of me. But if it helps anybody by being sincere, I'm good with it. And I'm grateful that he brings these trials into my life that knock my knees out from under me and allow me to see how I've betrayed him and the people I love.
And you get to a place where you think, Lord, the only way out of this is with you. And you know what he's done in the 54 years of my life on this earth? He's always saved me. And I live to be able to comfort others. He's delivered me in the past. He'll deliver me in the future. He saves me every day. He saved me from death unto life. You can see how the hand of God has kept us alive. Who kept your heart beating last night when you were sleeping? Your lungs moving? God always brings us through. And what Paul was declaring to the church at Corinth is that he got me through, he's going to get you through. I want to comfort you with these words. And uh, sad is the person who can't learn from a circumstance like that. They're just hard-headed. How much worse does it have to get? When are you going to cry out to the Lord? He promises never to leave you nor forsake you. If, if Trent, would you stand up? I've done this before, but I love this illustration. If, if, if Trent and I are friends, here come so I don't get any feedback. And, and Trent turns his back on the Lord and walks away. He walks away. God says he'll never leave us or forsake us. And, and he gets himself in a mess. And he just finally says, you know what? I can't do this. And turns around. Guess who's waiting for him? The, not me, the Lord. Amen. That's the idea that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Um, let, me, let me land this plane. Uh, can you live with the confidence that God is able to handle anything that may come your way? Well, that's a real measure of where you are in your relationship with him. Are you ready to be sincere? Integritous? Are you ready to keep a short account and acknowledge? Make it right? Because when you get through this mess, you're going to have an unbelievable ability to minister to others. Or if you want to live duplicitous and you want to live with all the chaff and not get down to the bedrock and keep the plate spinning and come up with whatever gimmick, the storms can get harder. Paul had five beatings from the Jews. I would have learned after one. I don't know that he had a lesson to learn other than it was strengthened that there's nothing that can happen to me on this earth that would ever compromise my integrity, my sincerity, and the simplicity of my relationship with God. That's what Paul came to understand. Are we without wax? Can we stand upon that foundation <clears throat> to trust him? Or are we still convinced that we can figure it out on our own? And I, I would leave you with this last thought that Whatever it is that's dying and you've given up hope, that's a really great place to be. If you're hoping in yourself. Now, like Trent, turn and the Lord is ready to take over. And then you're going to see the power of God and his ability to resurrect. And he has never, ever, ever let me down. 
And I can't count the times I've let him down, but he has never, ever let me down.